As the overdose crisis rages on and the pandemic-fatigued public runs low on empathy, there have been increasing calls for expanded involuntary commitment for people with substance use disorder. Some of the advocacy for more coercive treatment seems rooted in a disdain for people who use drugs, most especially when their drug use occurs visibly and in close geographic proximity to affluence. However, many others' support for involuntary treatment is rooted in compassion, love, and sheer desperation. In these instances, the supporters are often parents, loved ones, or beleaguered clinicians who care deeply for the well-being of individuals who use drugs and grasp at the idea of civil commitment as a necessary evil to save a life. The problem is forced treatment likely does more to harm than to help. That was Sarah Wakeman, an addiction medicine physician. She serves as the medical director for substance use disorder at Mass General Brigham in the office of the chief medical officer. She was reading from her recent first opinion essay on involuntary treatment for addiction. After a quick break, I'll bring you our conversation about opioid use disorder, what kind of treatment works, and what doesn't. I'm Jesse McWhorters, branded content editor for STAT. Recognizing the breadth and diversity of America's 53 million family caregivers, how can we better know and see these important unsung heroes? Lisa Wilson, head of Caregiver Advancement Strategy and Experience at United Healthcare, offers insights. Family caregivers are a cornerstone of our health system, but it can be challenging to support them in the moments that matter. United Healthcare is breaking down the barriers to identifying and engaging caregivers. For example, we're making it easy for caregivers to establish necessary HIPAA permissions and encouraging self-identification. The more we know about this population, the more we see them, especially early on in their caregiving journey, the better support we can provide. For more information, visit uhc.com slash caregiving. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Tori Bosch, editor of First Opinion. First Opinion is Stat's platform for interesting, illuminating, and provocative articles about the life sciences writ large, written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others. Sarah, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Tori. So let's start out with a very basic question. What is involuntary treatment for substance use disorder? What does it look like? So this varies from state to state and laws vary from state to state. Here in Massachusetts, this is something that's referred to as Section 35, which is essentially involuntary, quote unquote, civil commitment for substance use disorder, meaning that certain individuals, physicians, family members, police officers can petition a judge to force someone to go into treatment for a substance use disorder if um, the idea is that their substance use disorder is putting them at imminent risk of harm. Um, This is actually a pretty old process that is several decades old and was originally used for people with severe um, alcohol use disorder. And in the context of the ongoing overdose crisis has um, sort of taken off. So more and more people are involuntarily committed under Section 35. And much more often now, this is invoked for opioid use disorder and concerns about the overdose crisis. 
And it's recently come into the news again um, after somebody wrote a very touching New York Times opinion piece about his child and why he thinks that involuntary treatment should work, right? Or should be used more often. Yeah, this has come up again and again um, as people have grasped for solutions for the ongoing overdose crisis. And I think that was a, a beautiful and a poignant reminder of one of the many reasons people turn to this idea of involuntary commitment as a solution. I think um, when folks who think that this is not a great idea talk about it, it often is around people's disdain for people who use drugs, the idea that you're you're doing something, forcing people into sometimes really terrible prison circumstances, and we can talk more about what involuntary treatment actually looks like. But what I thought was so important about this piece is that most of the time when I hear about Section 35 being invoked, it often is by folks who really care about and deeply love and want the best for someone with substance use disorder. So family members, beleaguered emergency department physicians, you know, folks that are worried that this person that they care so much about is going to die from their substance use disorder. But the problem is that it isn't likely to help. And so I think it ends up being this conversation from both sides rooted in compassion. And the question is, what are going to be effective strategies to save the life of that human being that we're all worried about? You write that at one point in your career, you thought it might make sense as a really last ditch approach, right? You've tried everything else. Why not? But you say that you've changed your mind. So can you talk a little bit about what made you change your mind here? Yeah, well, I think first it's important to own that we all evolve all the time. And thankfully, my um, understanding today and my opinions and perspectives today are more nuanced than they were a decade ago. Um, But I would say a decade ago, you know, I think people were talking about involuntary commitment as akin to what we do for other types of um, of crisis. So, for example, if someone's suicidal, people would people would say, you know, we would keep this person in a treatment setting to save their life. Um, And that's often the argument that's used around involuntary treatment for substance use disorder. You know, my my understanding and, again, the nuance around addiction as a sort of health condition and the spectrum of substance use, which ranges from drug use that doesn't meet criteria for addiction to chaotic and severe substance use that does meet criteria for substance use disorder, and also what science has shown us are effective or ineffective strategies has really changed over the years. And I think I'm always willing to embrace anything that has a chance of helping and actually has been shown by evidence to improve the likelihood that people are going to stay alive and get well. And that really centers the dignity and autonomy of the people that we're serving. Um, and that's my role as a healthcare provider is to partner with human beings who are my patients. It's not my job to control them or tell them what to do. Um, and first, you know, I think one thing I've come to understand in reviewing the data that's out there is that civil commitment or involuntary commitment for substance use disorder doesn't seem to help. And there's actually a suggestion it may harm. And so from a purely sort of what does the research show, um, it's pretty clear that this is not an area to double down on, especially when we have decades of science showing us there are all these interventions that actually do save lives that we're not investing in. I think the other part that's changed my mind is, you know, hearing what the experience has been like for some of my patients. And, um, you know, we live in a society that still criminalizes and stigmatizes and punishes people who use substances. So although it's quite popular and politically favorable to say that addiction is an illness and that this is, you know, we can't quote unquote arrest our way out of the crisis. Um, Yeah, most of the time, I think if you boil it down to people's core beliefs about drug use, they still sort of think that people are doing something bad and they should knock it off. And that in these sort of 
good old American way, we expect people to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and just get better and stay better and stop doing this thing that we act as if it's, is a sort of an issue of morality or bad behavior. And so even though we're saying, oh, this is a public health crisis, you know, we want to offer people treatment, our quote unquote treatment models, our approaches, our policies and our laws still act like this is an issue of sort of criminal legality and bad behavior and something that's deserving of punishment. And, you know, civil commitment or, or involuntary commitment is one example of that, where quite literally a warrant is issued for someone's arrest. They are picked up by police. They are taken to court in shackles often. And if you're a man in this state, you still have a chance of getting sent to a correctional facility for this quote unquote treatment in a prison cell. Right. So as you say, treatment is about autonomy and dignity and putting someone in a correctional facility is really the opposite in a lot of ways of giving them autonomy and dignity. Um, Can you talk a little bit about why it is the situation is different for men in the state of Massachusetts than women? Yeah, well, before a few years ago, um, you know, both men and women, if they um, were civilly committed under Section 35, could go to correctional institutes. So um, under Governor Baker, in part um, due to the Opioid Addiction Working Group, and there's actually a Section 35 commission that um, the Secretary of Health and Human Services led, um, there was a um, important movement to get women and the civil commitment beds for women out of the correctional setting. Um, that hasn't yet happened for men. I, I don't know exactly what the barrier is, although I know there um, are is continued push for legislation around that. I, I believe Rep. Balser is maybe leading an effort around that, but there has been attention to the idea of um, also moving male beds out of the correctional setting. And when you say correctional setting, I mean, fundamentally, their experience isn't very different than someone who's there for having committed a crime, right? Exactly. At the end of the day, you are locked up in a correctional institute, often wearing an orange jumpsuit, eating the same food, you know, under the same control um, by correctional officers. I think... um, Depending on the site, there are efforts to do psychoeducation groups or peer support groups or some efforts around, you know, what could loosely be called treatment. Um, I think the experience for people who are going through it, though, you know, is not necessarily a therapeutic one. And um, and that element of coercion and control is obviously there all the time. Um, you know, I think of two different patients, you know, one patient who'd been in both multiple voluntary settings and involuntary settings, and had also been imprisoned. Um, and, you know, said to me that he actually preferred just being in prison where he could kind of mind his own business and do his own thing and wasn't forced to go to eight hours a day of what he perceived to be not very helpful groups. Um, you know, and another person who had been encouraged to quote unquote section himself, and that's the other sort of irony of what happens here, that actually a, a significant proportion of, of involuntary commitments in the state are people sectioning themselves, which really to me always seem very backwards because the nature of the law is meant to be a last ditch effort for someone who doesn't want treatment. So what does it say about our broken system? If someone actually wants treatment and the only way they can get treatment is by willingly sort of putting themselves into this involuntary setting where then they can't leave and they may be in a correctional setting. And this, so this gentleman who, you know, English was not his first language and he had not had experience with the treatment system before or the criminal legal system. And he was desperate and wanted help. And a family member told him to section himself and he found it utterly traumatic. You know, he was, again, treated like a prisoner and taken to a place where he couldn't leave. And his experience or what he shared of it was feeling very stigmatized and um, and not treated well. And at the end of the day, he couldn't do anything about it because once he was in there, he was, um, you know, he was considered an involuntary participant, even though he had gone in willingly. 
Are there any circumstances under which you would recommend a patient to to section themselves, you know, if they really have no access to, to care any other way? Or is there sort of always some other option? Well, I think there always should be some other option. I will say, yeah. you know, I've been a doctor since 2009 and I've never sectioned 35 someone. I can't quite imagine a situation where I would. I think, um, you know, the other piece of this is that people with substance use disorder and people who use stigmatized substances in our culture um, have often experienced trauma at the hands of systems, whether that's medical systems or um, other systems of so-called support. And, you know, trauma is often a defining feature. Often trauma is something that leads people to be at greater risk for having a substance use disorder in the first place. And so as a healthcare provider, I take it really seriously that I'm trying to earn the trust of the people that I'm partnering with and I'm privileged to take care of. And, you know, it's hard to imagine something more violating than having someone, you know, take responsibility for getting you locked up into a setting where you can't leave, especially if you've experienced trauma. And so, um, you know, I would hope that there's always another way and we should create a system in, you know, the United States in 2023 with the resource that we have, we should have better systems of care where people can immediately say they need help and we can actually help them that we don't have to lean on the criminal legal system to step in. Yeah, I mean, especially given the evidence that you point to, you know, that the statistics show that this isn't working. So, right, is punishment more important than curing people, I suppose, is one way of thinking about it. Yeah, and I think the question also becomes, you know, in medicine, sometimes I, I can't fix someone in the moment. That's not always the goal. The goal sometimes is how do we sort of take the next best step together and how do we reduce harm and keep people alive? And, you know, the other thing that worries me so much about involuntary treatment is, although I think family members and others will reach to it again out of desperation for how can I, you know, know that my child is going to be safe tomorrow, that they are not going to die from an overdose tomorrow. And while that may be true in the 14 days or 30 days or 90 days that that person is in a correctional setting, observational data from Massachusetts actually shows that people are at a greater likelihood of dying from an opioid-related overdose after a period of involuntary commitment than if they go to, than people who've engaged in voluntary treatment. Um, And so I think, you know, stepping back, our question should be, what is our best chance at keeping the most people alive and preventing anyone from dying from an overdose, which is really a preventable cause of death? And we have harm reduction strategies that we know prevent overdose fatality. We have treatment for people who do have an underlying substance use disorder that saves lives. And there's so much more we could be doing to address the fabric of people's lives, their social determinants of health and other social risk factors that make it really, really hard to get well. You know, if you are sleeping outside on the streets, experiencing trauma and victimization or boredom or the elements, it's really hard to imagine engaging in care, stopping using substances. And it becomes this broader question of when we're thinking about recovery, like recovery from what to what, you know, we need to be addressing the daily existence and realities of people and making people's lives better and not just focusing on removing the substance or removing someone's access to substance in that moment. And I want to go back to something you said earlier about how people who undergo involuntary treatment are more likely to die by overdose. And is that because during that 14 to 30 days, they haven't been using their substance of choice And so their tolerance goes down, leaving them at greater risk if they do use again. Is that right? 
You know, we don't know the exact answer of why, because this is observational data from um, the state's Chapter 55 data set, which was a really unique look at data that linked overdose uh, fatalities to um, public health sources of data and the correctional system and was able to observe sort of what factors put people at greatest risk for overdose. And there is this observation that people who'd gone through involuntary commitment were at higher risk of dying than people who had gone through voluntary treatment. What we do know is that people who've been in imprisoned are the population at greatest risk of dying from an overdose. So the risk of dying from overdose after getting out of the criminal legal system or getting out of a correctional facility is 120 times higher than the general public. And it is likely that one of the major drivers there is reduced tolerance. So people are not having, they are not using in the same way that they were using. And we're also not addressing the underlying factors that drive substance use or, you know, treatment for the underlying condition in an effective way that leads people to continue to not use when they get out. So if they go back to using without tolerance, the risk of dying from overdose is going to be significantly increased. Or even just, I suppose, the trauma of their carceral experience seems like it's something that could play a factor here. Exactly. Again, getting back to that notion of sort of how do we address the underlying factors? You know, if you've simply removed someone, put them in, you know, a cell, then send them back, why would their life be any better? In fact, their life might be worse. They may be more traumatized, more likely to use substances in a chaotic way. And if you haven't, um, you know, invested in the pieces of, of support and help and treatment and harm reduction that that do make a difference, then I think, you know, I worry that people are, are at even greater risk. You know, it seems to me that there's this tension here between the harm reduction that you're talking about here, ways to kind of help people continue to live while hopefully addressing you know, whatever has led them to use in the first place or whatever leads them to continue to use uh, versus this tough love idea that I think was really popular in the 80s and 90s. You know, I remember being in middle school health class in the mid to late 90s and watching a made-for-TV movie all about tough love that I think was supposed to scare us into never using anything because it would sort of hear, look what, what look what's in store for you should you use. Um Do you see any sign that that kind of tough love approach is starting to fade or is it still really powerful um, within public health circles or at least the broader population? Yeah, I mean, I remember those those health education classes too. the famous, you know, this is your brain on drugs, um, egg cracked in the pan and all of the dare education approaches and that sort of scare tactic idea that you'd scare young people into not using substances, which doesn't work. If anything, it actually makes people use drugs more. So it's, you know, wholly ineffective. It turns out what helps young people not use drugs, building resiliency, addressing adverse childhood experiences, preventing adverse childhood experiences, you know, reinvesting in communities and families. Families, like those are the things that make a difference. Um, but that, you know, has unfortunately not been our approach um, in a meaningful way. Um, you know, I worry that although, again, I think it is very um, popular to say that this is a health issue and we're going to use public health strategies those underpinnings and that ideology and all of those sort of tropes about addiction that we've been exposed to about tough love and hitting bottom and enabling are still right there. And in some places, we're seeing it come back, you know, with a vengeance. I think a lot of the sort of vitriolic conversation, for example, in San Francisco about, um, you know, episodes of very visible um, experiences of homelessness and drug use and mental illness, this idea of sort of tough love and the need for um, for cracking down on human beings has come up again. Um, and I think there's often just a fundamental misunderstanding or mis 
perception of harm reduction and what harm reduction is, you know, I think at its core, harm reduction is radical love. It's love for another human being. It's what we would all hope to get from anyone else if we were in a moment of struggle, which is someone to sort of partner with you and help you take that next step, whatever that looks like. And it's not about what my goals are as a doctor for you. It does not matter at all what I think you should do. It matters that you think your life is going to get better and want to reach some sort of goal that this is getting in the way of, whether it's staying alive, finding housing, getting a phone, you know, connecting to family, not getting hepatitis C, not dying from overdose. All of those are incredibly worthwhile goals. And so I think really reframing this concept of enabling, you know, enabling is like the sturdy word that if you're somehow kind to a person who uses substances or who has substance use disorder, you're doing something terrible. And I think it's I mean, it makes families feel terrible. They are told that if they are kind and compassionate to their loved one or let their kid, you know, continue to have a home, that they are doing something bad, that they're hurting their loved one. And that is just fundamentally not true. And I think we want to all think about how do we enable health? Like, how do we all become enablers? We should all be working to enable our communities to stay well and to be vibrant and revitalized and to not experience overdose and unsupervised public drug use and all of the um, terrible health consequences that people are forced into. Um, So I think that taking that notion back um, is really important. You know, kicking someone out so that they're all of a sudden homeless on top of dealing with a substance use disorder is never going to make that person's life better or make their substance use disorder better. That's, you know, this idea of tough love or hitting bottom is, is just wrong. There are times when families are trying to keep themselves safe for whatever reason. That's a different conversation. But if we're talking about how do you help someone who's dealing with a substance use disorder, making their life worse is never going to make them better. Um, You know, the definition of a substance use disorder is continued use, loss of control over your use despite bad things happening to you. And we know that drug use is a powerful coping mechanism for times of stress. So making that person's life worse, taking their children away, kicking them out of housing, taking their job away, you know, that's not going to help that person heal. If anything, it will make their chaotic substance use worse. And so I think being really honest about what are we trying to do here? What are our goals and and what's been shown to help and what's been shown to harm? Yeah, as you're talking, I keep thinking about intervention, which I, I watched pretty religiously for a moment there. Um and yeah, thinking about the interventionist had one of them had this catchphrase that was something like, there's nothing we won't do to keep you healthy and nothing we will do to help you continue in your addiction. And it, it does seem right, as you say, that it's it's a punitive approach sort of framed as non-punitive in a way that's perhaps not very helpful. Yeah. And it's also this total binary. You know, it's it's this mm-hmm. notion that substance use and substance use disorder is this black or white thing that you're, you know, you're in recovery or you're not. And even the language we use, you know, clean for someone who's in remission, like, what are we saying with our words? You know, what, what, what are we calling when we're saying someone's clean? First of all, we're implying that people actively use drugs are dirty. Um, and I'll always think of a beloved colleague who talked about being, who's in recovery and talked about going on job interviews, um, um, to work in the area of recovery. And people would say on the job interview, you know, how long have you been clean for? And he would say, well, I've been bathing since I was a baby. So I've been clean <laughs> my entire life and I've been in recovery for 10 years. You know, it's like, what message are we sending to people that we're using terms that we use for the bathroom and for laundry when we're talking about human beings and their health? 
And I want to go back to something else that you mentioned, which is that as a doctor, your job is not to fix somebody, it's or to, but it's to work with them to help them figure out how to best live their life. I mean, that has to get really difficult for you, right? Because I mean, I imagine you're you're a compassionate human being who wants to see people get better, and you don't always see people get better. So, can you talk a little bit about how you handle that uh, as a doctor? Yeah, I mean, first. And first I'll say, so I'm a general internist who went into addiction medicine. So at my heart, I'm also a primary care doctor. And, you know, what I love about primary care and addiction medicine is the opportunity to partner with people over the lifespan and to be a part of their lives and their health and, and working on their um, their health-related goals. I have colleagues who very much do fix people. I have utter respect for surgeons and I've had family members who need surge- surgery and it is amazing to just cut the problem out and fix it and remove it. That's not the type of medicine I went into, but... Um, um, it is amazing when you see that happen. Um, I think, you know, a lot of what we do in in um, medicine, internal medicine is, you know, it's management. It's partnering with people and there's ups and downs in their health. And if you think about hypertension or depression or heart disease or diabetes, you know, it's not a linear journey. There's going to be times where someone's health is, you know, going really well and they have, you know, are taking medication regularly and their blood tests look um, right at goal. And there's going to be other times where that's not the case. And that's a part of sort of the partnership and management. Um, and to me, you know, substance use is no different than that. If anything, it's much even more sort of interesting and rewarding because there's so many interwoven threads of um, how drug use and alcohol use plays a part in someone's life. And, you know, one of the things that drew me to addiction medicine is this intersection between public health and policy and social justice and primary care and mental health that I think is really rich and interesting and an opportunity to, um, you know, to be involved in something very important. Um, I think at the end of the day, we don't talk enough about the fact, though, that addiction is actually a good prognosis illness. So when I tell people I do addiction medicine, you know, often their response is either like, bless you, or, oh, wow, that must be so hard. And I want to say like, no, it's actually the most rewarding thing I do in medicine. Like I also take care of diabetes and HIV and heart disease. And you don't see the type of miraculous sort of remission rates that we see in substance use disorder and the opportunity to really be a part of this sort of gritty, resilient, amazing process. And then treatment that saves people's lives. And especially when we're talking about opioid use disorder and medications for opioid use disorder, um, the impact is just remarkable. There's nothing else I do in medicine that saves lives the way prescribing buprenorphine does. And so that hands down is is the most rewarding, gratifying, amazing thing I do in medical practice. And I think people don't hear that enough. They think of this as like this terrible end stage thing that never gets well. And that's, that's really not the case. I think the fact that we see that so much is in part because we haven't invested in systems of care that actually help. There's like six new first opinions I want to beg you to write after we're done with this. This is fascinating. Um, we're close to end of time, but I have a couple quick questions I want to make sure to get in there. Um, the first is, so as you say, involuntary treatment is something that the evidence shows us doesn't work, yet people continue to push for it. Are there other well-intentioned but ineffective ideas out there in addiction treatment that you would like to sort of debunk while we're here? Oh, how much time do we have and where do we begin? (laughs) Um, Yes, yes. I mean, I think one of the consequences of removing addiction treatment from the medical system so that it's a separate and totally unequal system is that much of what happens in the addiction treatment world would be malpractice if it happened in the medical world. Um, And there is a, I mean, profit in medicine is a problem writ large. 
the sort of rehab industrial complex and addiction treatment world is um, is heavily intertwined and driven by profit, unfortunately. And there haven't been a lot of efforts around sort of quality standards and um, oversight or bringing it back into the house of medicine. So I think some of the biggest challenges, you know, short-term quote unquote detox does not work. When we're talking about opioid use disorder, not only has no study ever shown it to be helpful, it actually probably increases the risk of death for the same reasons we talked about with um, going to a correctional setting. Um, This idea of like 30 day rehab that everyone sees on TV and that there's many people in Florida and California and all these places that would be very happy to um, take your money for also has limited evidence, especially for opioid use disorder. Um, and there's just this, you know, very, um, I think, manipulative and profiteering um, element, unfortunately, to a lot of the for-profit addiction world that is so disturbing. I can't tell you the number of families I've had tell me they, you know, took out a second mortgage on their house to pay for some residential program far away, you know, that had no evidence behind it and didn't help their loved one. And not only is the patient suffering, but the family's suffering. And, it, you know, at a moment of a real desperation and worry, there's um, an industry that's that's making money and, and, and offering essentially snake oil. And speaking of making money, I have to ask you about the Sacklers of Purdue Pharma, who just last week it was announced um, will be immune from uh, prosecution um, and have offered $6 billion uh, to help kind of mitigate the crisis that they're largely believed to have helped create. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how people think about the Sacklers? You know, is this something are they really the ones we should be blaming for this? Is this something we should all be paying attention to? Um, what do you think about them? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the um, there's no doubt that the Sacklers, at least based on the evidence that has been shared and, you know, as a non-lawyer, my sort of observation from the sidelines that um, the, you know, marketing ploys and predation off of people um, ultimately with opioid use disorder that, um, allowed the Sackler funny family to make a ton of money is um, is deeply upsetting. And I don't think you can put a dollar amount on the lives that have been lost to the overdose crisis. And certainly, um, you know, the approach to prescription opioids in the late 1990s and early 2000s set the stage for the current crisis that we're in. Um, you know, that is not the crisis of now. And so it is important when we think about strategies um, which is, you know, what I'm focused on. How do we save lives? How do we address the crisis? The crisis of 2023 is not a prescription opioid crisis. Um, And this is such a nuanced topic. So it's a little hard to tease apart those threads because yes, the Sacklers and companies like Purdue, and there are other companies too, that also of course have been sued and and were implicated in um, the onset of the prescription opioid crisis, which began a couple decades ago. And also there are patients with chronic pain who actually are benefiting from chronic opioid therapy who themselves have been villainized or left abandoned and unable to find medical care who are dying by suicide, who are dying by overdose, who are losing their doctors because they can't find anyone to take care of them. So they are also a a victim, if we're talking about victims, of this sort of binary approach to the overdose crisis where we seem only able to 
think in simplistic notions that prescription opioids must be bad because of where we are. Absolutely, the way prescribing was happening in the 90s and the in the early 2000s and the sort of non-medical use in the community that set the stage for opioid use disorder and overdose um, was horrific. And also there are people who need opioids for pain management who aren't able to get them. And we should be able to hold both those truths in our mind. And one of the things that makes me so sad sometimes is that you know, on social media and other places, there's almost this sort of like war between people living with pain and people with substance use disorder when everyone is a victim to sort of bad drug policy, essentially, and bad approaches to understanding the nuanced issues of, of pain and opioid use. Um, so is there a dollar amount to make up for that and for what the Sacklers contributed to that? I don't think so. I, you know, no money will bring those those children and those families back. And also, whatever money is going to come out of this, can we actually invest it into strategies that help? Can we invest it into low barrier median access to medication, to overdose prevention sites, to drug checking, to undoing some of the harmful policies, to housing, you know, community revitalization, revitalization, and and affordable low barrier supportive housing. And those are the things that are going to make a difference in the current crisis. Sarah Wakeman, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a fascinating conversation. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I love to hear from listeners, so please let me know which first opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast and column should take on. You can do that by sending me an email at first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, yes, it's that plea you hear at the end of every podcast, please leave a review or rating on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Tori Bosch, and please don't keep your opinions to yourself.